Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. This episode, we have a special guest, and I'm going to start with reintroducing him. Welcome again, Ernie Gygax. Yay! Yay! It's a pleasure to be here. How are you doing today? We're doing really good. And of course, joining us as always is Jen Brinkman. Hello! And Mark Bruner. Hello, hello. So we're going to talk about one of Ernie's longtime favorite appendix entries, Hyro's Journey by Sterling E. Lanier. Mark, do you want to give us the synopsis? Sure. Pierre Hyro Destine is a priest, a telepath, and a highly trained killer. 5,000 years after the Holocaust known as the Death destroyed civilization, Hyro explores the mutant-infested wilderness of Canada and North America, riding a mutated telepathic moose named Klutz. The Abbey has attempted to establish colonies, but the evil Brotherhood of the Unclean was waging all-out war against the few remnants of normal humanity, determined to wipe out all traces of its emerging civilization. Hyro's task was to bring back a lost secret of the ancients that might save the humans. His eventual allies include Gorm, a telepathic black bear, and Lucher, a princess from the distant kingdom of Dala. But his path lay through the very heart of the territory ruled by the Unclean, and their hordes of mutated, intelligent, savage beast followers. And the unclean were waiting for him. Yes, they were. Mm. <laughs> right off the bat, great, great choice, Ernie. I'd always wanted to read this just because telepathic moose. Because, um, <laughs> come on. But this was so much fun. This was a real big treat for me. Well, by having played Metamorphosis Alpha, you can see that James Ward got a lot of wonderful ideas for this that he put into the Starship Warden also. I think both Metamorphosis Alpha and Gamma World really owe such a debt to this book. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was When I was reading this, I was just evoking Legions of Gold, which is that first module for Gamma World. It just resonated so much in terms of like that wilderness you know, exploration. Very good choice. Another book that would be on a similar vein, not quite as detailed, would be Starman's Son by Andre Norton, otherwise known as AD 2055, I think. It has a gigantic pussycat with an adventuring dude wandering around with, on rafts and things and all sorts of mutated bad guys. But okay, back to Hyro's journey, I guess. <laughs> I think the science fiction world owes Lanier a huge debt of thanks. Uh, he's the guy that convinced Chilton to publish Frank Herbert's Dune after Dune had been turned down by 20 different publishers. 
And uh, for taking that stand, for convincing them to publish Dune, he was fired because Dune didn't perform well at first. And, uh, and as Ernie pointed out last episode, uh, the quality of Dune went downhill and, in my opinion, continues to go downhill with all of the releases that his son has done. <sighs> but if it wasn't if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have Dune. We've recently been discussing Vance and Vance's use of language, and I think the language use here kind of stands out for most Appendix N in that it's not overly simplistic, but it's less grandiloquent than a lot of the other yeah. Appendix N books. There's words here or there that are going to make you stop and go, oh, that's really nice, but the language use, it's not as archaic or in-depth. It's much more of, a, of an everyday storytelling. Um, I would go so far as to say that the dialogue was a little simplistic, though. Everybody said exactly what they meant. Well, but then again, I found that reflective of the story itself. You know, civilizations fall in, half the characters are animals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it could also be a commentary on everybody can think into each other's thoughts, and maybe that's the most direct way, is you have that access to the sort of you know basic understanding, and that comes out in the speech as well. But I, that's you know, interpreting something at a level, you're right. I think that the communication is, is very straightforward in terms of how the characters interact. Well, and for a post-apocalyptic story, there's the major use of Christianity and other religions like the Davids. And it showed their change over time. And it also showed the linguistic shift of former nations with their names and the religious names. They were all there. They were all still recognizable, but they were all just sort of tweaked a little bit. He was very proud of his background and the purity of his people until he found out that they had themselves been a mixture of French Canadians and Indians that had been ostracized from the normal parts of Canada. And therefore, when the bomb and all the pestilence and stuff hit, they had a, a much uh, better survival rate than all the others. Yeah, it was really kind of kind of fun to find that the Mets had come from the Metis people of Canada. That was that that was really cool. <laughs> and that whole we are racially pure in our impurity. Uh, that's only because there's a smaller gene pool to pull from, man. <laughs> but but that's also one of the themes in the story. A lot of the themes in the story are still really relevant whether it's people proud of perceived racial purity, um, when they talk about the death and they talk about you know the events leading up to it, greed, environmental destruction, overpopulation, running out of resources. I mean, all of that's still really relevant, if not more so today. And so I think reading that, I was able to go, Yep, this is my world, as opposed to reading a story set in 2015 where they're still using corded telephones. This <laughs> makes that transition to the future and then beyond, believably. Well, and, and for the year that it was written, you know, there was definitely that concern about the Cold War that came through into the writing. Granted, they... Well, that, that idiot in North Korea is trying to do his best to... To recreate that situation. Well, yeah, that's true. He's using nerve gas to kill his brothers right now. Yeah. Uh, <sighs> but I hadn't even thought about the Cold War aspect, because really, at the beginning of the story, when the Abbey is talking to Hiro, and he's like, well, 
we're trying to expand. We're sending people out, and they're just vanishing. Uh, that's pretty much sort of like the Cold War. You know, people would send spies out to another country, and they might come back or they might not. There aren't any real open hostilities at the beginning. So it really is kind of a parallel to that Cold War mentality. Well, yeah, they're sending out trained killer priests. So, yeah, assassin, maybe, you know. That works in my political world. (laughs) 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 Yes, he's the wrong guy. He's he's not one of the good guys. So therefore, it's evil. <laughs> but then you've you've got assassin priest. Okay, that's kind of weird. But priest with animal telepathy, D- assassin druid. Okay, this is just getting strange. <laughs> oh yeah, the followers of the eleventh commandment. The druids are the eleveners. Yeah, and what was that eleventh commandment? It was um, you will not. It was you will not destroy the earth and the life upon it. Okay. It's mentioned It's mentioned in the story. Yes, it is. The story also makes a point that a society advancing is not itself inherently civil or good. When you look at the Dwala, the society that uh, Lucer, Lucer comes from, they've got cities, they've got gates. It's perceived by her as this great society, but there's slavery, there's horrible abuses. It's not really a good society, it's just kind of advancing. Information and knowledge just don't need to be shared amongst those who are the powerfully elite. Yes, they were hoarding information from times gone by, hoarding the information from the ancients. Well, the, yeah, even like literacy in that society was only reserved for you know the upper elites, whereas in Harrow's society... You know, he makes a comment at one point that literacy is universal and, you know, the telepathic teachings are sort of like this, you know, thing that starts from an early age in a lot of cases, just with that ability. So it's a little bit, yeah, it's that dichotomy of saying, you know, how these two societies have evolved over that time. And the, everybody's not equal by any means. So there's, it's, it's by your abilities rather than by your breed for where you advance within the structure. That is very true. When people of differing races were encountered, they weren't judged based on that. They were judged on what they could do. Other than Yogorm, most people judged him as as an interesting bear. They didn't understand that his people had advanced and were far more intelligent and were were watching humanity as, as much as they were. But when it came to people, people really did get judged by what they could do frightened of people because they see that um, people strike out <laughs> and remove anything that they themselves can't control including each other yeah but that i mean that's even true for the followers of the unclean they were far more interested in hiro because of what he could do yes they mocked him for being a priest of this religion but because he was talented they were willing to talk to him rather than just kill him outright And they were using a device to try to tap into his powers to see what he could do. They couldn't do what he could do, but they could still try to discover and emulate it. Well, they had powers first, but it was mostly machine-assisted because they were the offspring of scientists that had survived the cataclysm. Right. Okay, so this is all of our eggheads that have still, you know, somehow... (laughs) And they're... They're still continuing along, and they they were fighting amongst each other, uh, just possibly like Stalin and Hitler and whatever else. And then finally, there was supposedly back in their past, one 
super leader who, of, of course, we all want to be on top. So the idea is that we will set up all these circles of, of you know, power and you will be autonomous within your own region, but we'll have a council and the council can uh, demand or overpower your own desires. So you had a bunch of like uh, dukes with with a king or an emperor kind of council thing, though it wasn't an individual. And that was that was kind of neat that they had a power structure set up for a nice lawful evil organization. Yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because from Harrow's point of view, it's very one-dimensional. These guys are evil. They represent all that is bad about humanity. That's what's become unclean and, and sort of this evolution of scientific thought to basis. But then you actually get a picture of their structure. I think there's like a couple passages where you see from their point of view. And you're right, you know, how have they set up their society definitely was intriguing. And, and I wish there's a little bit more of that in the novel. Well, the second novel's not bad. I think it's a little bit more power crazy again. And he did, uh, Sterling Lear did a third novel that I enjoyed too, that was a, somewhat of a similar vein, but not this world or hero. Hmm. So those are the only three books of his that I've ever found. Now, I noticed that when he starts talking about the mental abilities, the majority of the mental abilities only affect other people with mental abilities. Yes, he's that strongly in there that it only can affect. And while while he then does have an attack later on during the Battle of the Pirates where he is hitting people, that kind of struck me, you know, in, in first edition D&D, most psionics only affect people with psionics. I was kind of curious if that's where that might have stemmed from. Sure. And psionics weren't used very long at all uh, before we stopped using them in the game completely. Oh, good. Then I don't feel bad for never using them. <laughs> <laughs> Wish more GMs would not. <laughs> it's a wonderful concept, again, for a separate game system where it's only that and perhaps a, a level progression. But it's it's not. It, it itself is. It, it can destroy characters and the carefully conceived concepts of leveling and... Well, moder in modern games, it's overdone because now you have this is a difficulty for encounter or whatever. But the idea that um, psionics will be uh, what do we call that when min maxing? Oh yes, always looking mm. to get the most with the least. Yeah. So just getting from that, it sounds like even though this is listed as a source for Appendix N, and and psionics is obviously the most direct sort of correlation. You can draw. Did, was there anything else that was being brought in from this work that you can see into D and D, not necessarily Gamma World, but that you that you see kind of echoed throughout D and D, more than just the psionics and psionics was sort of experimented with and then not used after that. Well, we had D and D players go into Metamorphosis Alpha. We didn't play Gamma World. Gamma World was an extension to try to make it broader and a bigger market. It was all just a Starship Warden, and in fact, some of Jim Ward's D&D characters are on the Starship Warden working for the Vigilists, which are the group that my dad and I had. <laughs> and with and Jim was very sad to lose his elf warlock that way, with his fireball wand and stuff. <laughs> that he'd probably taken from you. No, but Jim, Jim actually does have the house on one of the levels from the Harrow's book. The end. Oh, really? Uh, no! No, oh, wow. no, no. That's awesome. Bob, no. 
<laughs> the house was incredibly creepy. See, in Metamorphosis Alpha, all the weapons have limited range. So Jim has the house's abilities go farther than the laser rifles and the pulse rifles and this and that weapon types. But the fireball wand had a range of like 40 more feet or 40 more yards. You know, 220. <laughs> we were able to really mess up and just really destroy the heck out of his mold uh, spore fungus uh, monster level. The house that moved in a non-Euclidean fashion? Yeah, no. No, no, no. Got it. Okay, <laughs> next time I play in one of Jim Ward's Metamorphosis Alpha games, and he says, write down any five things that you would like to take. Wand of fireballs should be one of the things that I want. God, that's, that's a, no, that's a good Absolutely. <laughs> so if we've learned nothing else... <laughs> oh, and Metamorphosis Alpha was just great. So really, Metamorphosis Alpha and... Even the making of Metamorphosis Alpha, my dad kind of like walked Jim Ward through some of that. Because even though Jim Ward was an English teacher, he had some difficulty putting things down and writing in the earliest days. But he's been quite prolific and has spent a long time improving his skills. Yeah. But he and this particular book and the next book helped also. Unforsaken Hiero, I think, is the second book. I mm-hmm. think I think so, yeah. This and so many other things went on to... Because Jim already had the idea of the ship going through the, the, the weird radiation belt, whatever else. But then he needed to, like, fill it. And I think this came along at just the right time. With the mutations and everything, yeah. And mental powers and physical as, as being two separate things. And also getting stronger... When you survive mental attacks, you gain the ability after so many to uh, get another point into your mental resistance. You know, that's right. true. I, I didn't even think about that in terms of metamorphosis self, and that is exactly how that went. I had noticed that the wolves that he encountered, the intelligent wolves, really put me to mind of wolfoids, definitely. Well, and the, and the classic warning for any Metamorphosis Alpha player, bad air, <laughs> which of course shows up uh, maybe not alongside the wolves, but yeah. They heighten senses, where the, where the bear's senses, and then they even bring out that the bear has poor vision, uh, but he's able to, to smell so well that he's able to find under, underneath like a couple feet of dirt and other stuff, the complex, that's the missile base. Right. right. And and so he obviously has the flaw of poor eyesight. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I think he makes the comment that I rely on Hiro or Hero for your vision and you rely on me for my smell or something like that. Yeah. Now, Jim Ward, when he got to play an MA game that wasn't his own, that was a spinoff, maybe Brian Bloom or something like this, uh, his choice for a character was a mountain gorilla. Okay, so he had already he naturally had heightened strength without having to, to add that as a physical attribute. And then he took um, heightened eyesight okay. to, you know, compensate for the ability of, you know, because that's they, they don't have good eyesight. But he said, of course they do it in, in this because the mountain gorilla, he said, that's why we, we live on mountains for the view. <laughs> <laughs> it's literally a Chim Ward quote, whatever else. 
where Brian Bloom, for some reason, wanted to play an elephant, a mutated elephant, and then this constantly caused troubles. So when the situation came and we could have maybe saved him, we just kind of let him get killed. Oh, <laughs> it comes out. Yeah, it's never a good thing when the table says, eh, good luck. Because he was playing very chaotic and just the idea of, well, let's just make this fun, like a Keystone Cop kind of thing. Uh, yeah. Our games, at least with my dad, whatever else, we were always trying to figure out how to get the best potential out of our players. And even though we still had individual action and we weren't, you know, just a combat team, we still would cooperate. Except for maybe when it comes to who's got what treasure later on afterwards. Uh, and even that would generally be with die rolling and stuff, but if something could be pocketed or whatever, well, say la vie, that was just the way things went. It's all fun and games till someone develops hole and head disease. <laughs> you have to have uh, projectiles with gunpowder or something then. And I do like the um, the thrower that he starts with because it's a bore based. I'm trying to think. Yeah, a muzzle loader. It's a, it's a muzzle loading. Yeah, that he's loading slugs into. Yeah, and it's for some reason it's slow, and I don't know if he has to pour in gunpowder or whatever. They don't explain, but it's it's something that shows that it's not quick. Yeah, but I thought it was cool about that gun too. Was all the ammunition? I think there's a comment that's like it's custom made. Like each of these rockets have to be they're they're sort of precious on their own because they're you know it's not like just getting a, a slug of metal or loading a, a musket ball or something like that. It's he's only got a limited supply, and it's not like he can go and and fashion his own you know, to replace that ammunition. Supposedly, if I got the idea right, it's probably the value of the gun in the 100 rounds is something like a small house, like my cottage. Would be like, yeah. Okay, so $70,000 or something like that, okay? To put it in perspective. So it's not something cheap and, and not prolific and wasn't standard attire, but it's something that his well-off family or whatever else had gotten him for survival. As his, sometimes in our games, we'll give some a magic item to a new character or some, mm-hmm. some sort of family heirloom. That would be what I would see that in, as in this particular instance. That works. I totally agree, yeah. It also reinforces the idea that the quote-unquote new things that they're finding are still decades or even centuries behind our own progress. But since the death, it's all new. And, oh yes, I've got this sword. Nobody makes a comment on its age. It's just, oh, that's his sword. That that must be what he's always used. Even when, uh, when he's scrapping metal to make arrowheads. Yeah, or 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 the new boats that showed up. Yeah, we, we've got these wooden boats. Oh, but theirs is new. It's completely hovering above the water, if I recall. But instead of saying, oh, it it's that fancy science, it's just new. I mean, these are people that just rediscovered clocks recently. The sense of time and the passage of it and just, you know, new versus old, it's kind of an ageless story in and of itself. At least that's what I got. Bob? I, like I said, I've been wanting to read this story for so long. All I knew was man riding telepathic moose, and I was I was already <laughs> sold. And, and then when I get in there, and there's all the mutated creatures, and there's the buried city, and there's 
there's these vying religions going back and forth trying to recover ancient artifacts it was a lot of fun i really enjoyed it well it's kind of a an offshoot of the catholic church fighting versus science uh the unclean are are the scientists and we've got an organization trying to bring back from barbarism peoples and so i guess at this point we have to root for the secular the church <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, sort of like the post-apocalyptic crusades. Wasn't it uh, well, the Church Universal? Yeah, is that what they were calling it? Well, they they were calling it theirs, but yeah, the the other the, like the Dwala people would have called that sacrilege because their church, of course, was paramount. It was interesting that they had these different religions that were claiming to be the universal for their peoples. You know that that whole idea of the religious order is the one that's doing the preservation of knowledge and trying to ensure that humanity can survive. It, it's fallen to that religious people instead of the scientists, right? The ones because the scientists can't handle that knowledge, but the you know the religious ones are the ones that are able to take it in and and give it back to the people in a fashion where it helps or aids them. I, I, kind of a theme that goes throughout the book or the or Hira's journey. It's the medieval um, ages again with the monasteries, right? And it reminded me a lot of the book Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller, which is very similar in that the priests are the ones collecting and bringing knowledge and. And that was another book that was very powerful, you know, storytelling, you know, but this one echoed it a lot in a different way. Yeah, that was a good book. I, I remember it distantly in the past. <laughs> I just remember when he finally realizes what he has been copying, what he has been illuminating, and essentially it's a low-grade tech manual for like a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> right. But it's it's all about just preserving everything they can from before the disaster. I thought I thought what was really kind of neat about this and the one thing that is a little telling of the time period was he's looking for, you know, computer because a computer is a great thing for, for gathering knowledge. And the computers that he comes across are, of course, the size of a small room. And so he can't get a computer, but he can get a book about them. Yeah. And I was like, you know, if someone wrote this today, he, he'd be walking out with like four laptops. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, a, and a 4K screen to hook them all up to. Um but it gave it that that sense of of gravitas and scale that I think would have been lacking in a in a modern day telling the story. Instead, it's just this colossal you know, albatross that he can't even put around his neck once he finds it. I don't know, but every old computer that I've pulled out and or lots of my old hard drives tend to have problems after just a decade. Yes. <laughs> Magnetic media doesn't really hold up well over millennia. Uh, unless those computers are using punch cards, they probably won't boot at all. Yeah, there really was a, a large emphasis on the written word. And, you know, those manuals. And the the focus on runes, which were the, the letters or words of old languages. And, oh, I can read this one. Let me telepathically tell you what this actually means. But I, th I think my favorite part was the fact that mathematical tables are their prayers. And that really struck me as kind of a conflict of interest. You know, here you are, part of the church, you're claiming that the followers of science are completely evil, and yet your prayers are made of mathematical tables. But it wasn't that they, it wasn't that they were directly struggling against science, 
as much as controlling the adherence to science. So I think that science would be allowed, but it would have to be controlled by those who are supposedly wiser than the than the commoners. Um, so it would be the idea of a hierarchy of of peoples that would then allow certain things in or not into the the general. So as long as it's some, they're afraid of the idea of creating whatever it was that that did the death, the the, the nuclear holocaust. Yes. Yeah, they don't want another one. <laughs> so it's it's created some sort of an idea where you you will do anything possible to make sure that doesn't happen. And and the brother, the Eleventer, is almost ready to even uh, maybe kill them or try to do anything. Pardon me. When he's in this place and he sees that it's that's a silo and that it does have, it's either had or still has missiles involved in the structure, and and he's about ready to lose his sanity and go nuts because just the whole concept of uh, that this is this is something that we've been taught is uh, Lucifer. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It is. It is the great evil that destroyed us all. Yeah, the the story was just fantastic. I cannot recommend it enough. I will certainly have to uh, sit down and reread the second one in the coming days. Now, I will say a, a little word of thanks, Ernie, to your father and, well, really everyone in TSR, because outside of the artwork employed, your stories don't seem to involve that much of a misogynistic or chauvinistic, shall we say, uh, <laughs> overarching theme. Okay. Uh, well, as opposed to a great number of, shall we say, the, the little yellow-spined books, um, you literally have the princess tied to a stake. <laughs> And, uh, yeah. Okay. Waxing poetic. Well, in, in this book, the poor the poor young lady uh, is tied to a stake, but she's valiantly fighting the birds that are trying to kill her. And then he comes to the rescue, but she's not just sitting there going, Ew, oh, help, help, help. You know, tied to the railroad tracks, whatever. She's, she's actively fighting and desperately using her own resources. And... And all that. So, I don't know, but I still like the idea that a woman can't have 18 double zero strikes. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know my massage therapist. That's all I'm going to say. Anyway. <laughs> she can't be Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> she can be close. She can be damn tough and beat my ass. But she can't take the toughest of the tough. <laughs> but she can learn new things like telepathy. And, and that's Very cool. Speedily. And she might even have a higher dexterity potential at some point, as as uh, lady pilots have proven in, in some, in, uh, especially in Israel and other places. Very true. Well, at this point, um, hey Bob, your host. Well, I think at this point we're going to shift over to DCC, so we're going to thank our our special guest for these past two episodes ernie uh once again thank you so much for coming on uh yeah with gary con coming up we just we had to 
to really dig in deep and you've really helped us and and thank you for the inspiration and the the suggestion for the book at hand i think we all got a lot out of it oh yeah thank you so much for sharing all the stories and for just sharing your time really appreciate it all right well hope to see you at gary Cat. oh you definitely will (laughs) mark are you gonna be there um i will have more on that later okay (laughs) 10th anniversary the next year we're trying to blackmail him at this point (laughs) he's just too nice to blackmail all right well then now that we've said goodbye to ernie let's move on to things to stat I gotta say right off the bat, my, my favorite thing that I wanted to stat so much was the glyph, because based on its description, I thought it was maybe a mutated pangolin. You know, that they're, they're kind of those anteater-like things covered with those thick uh, chitinous scales, and they're all gray. I just give that thing a long tongue, and, and it's perfect. So, totally wanted to stat that thing up. When I read the description of snappers, I couldn't stop thinking of Gamera. I want a nuclear-powered snapper. Is what I want. <laughs> Which were the snappers? The snappers were the snapping turtles that were big enough to keep entire armies from crossing rivers. Oh, cool. Okay. And they're like, yeah. They still had that turtle instinct of laying eggs on the beach, right? They're yes. Just, you know, he watched them, and they even stole the eggs too to, to eat later. Yeah, because they're not good parents. They lay eggs and leave. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're deadbeat parents. Like Ernie mentioned earlier, the house, this intelligent fungal collective that uses bloated green flies as its eyes and ears oh i want to stat that up this colony of intelligent life as long as you don't use it in a game against me Uh, i make no promises (laughs) damn it (laughs) (laughs) the various factions of the adepts of the unclean the blue the red and the yellow factions i thought would be kind of neat since they all have their own differing philosophies that you get hints of in the way that they approach solving problems. I think it's the yellow, their their approach to solving problem is just kill it, kill it hard, kill it with fire, kill it again. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't think about that because, yeah, these factions could really differentiate them, maybe even based on what technology they sort of are associated with right. in some way as well. You know, that's neat. Obviously, you could write up all sorts of various forms of psionic attack and control, or you could just buy mind games from Shield of Faith. Uh, <laughs> or you could do both. But the the psionics were really neat with the, the various forms of telepathy and the differing channel levels to, to reach out. It was something to play with. And I liked the idea of doing a class based on the Mets Warrior Clerics people like Hyro, I thought that'd be kind of neat. I'm with you on, on wanting to do the mechanics for the telepathy and, you know, how those might vary from race to race. Because again, Gorm becomes very well versed in the art of telepathy for a creature that is descended from mutated bears. Well, and to be fair, I think that we really discover that it's not that he becomes very well versed, it's that he is very well versed and people keep underestimating him. Well, he becomes better at expressing himself as opposed to Klutz's very awkward and clumsy way of getting ideas across. That's fair. Yeah, for that matter, you could stat up Klutz, Gorm. 
telepathic moose. <laughs> you have to have a telepathic moose. <laughs> but Luchar's people, oh, yeah. since they're actually it's sort of a more warrior priest, uh, you know, in the in its traditional sense. Honestly, with with their descriptions being so dark skinned, my brain went back to the African ancestry and mm-hmm. far more tribal than with the more civilized bronzed skin the 20th century weapons that Hiro was carrying around yeah that that new ship that we saw and we have to have an electricity cannon oh the lightning gun oh yeah, yeah. well yeah it, it want, was an electricity I want a cannon <laughs> moose mounted lightning gun that's what i want to do <laughs> You know what to ask Jim Ward for in your next uh, Metal Horses album, the five items. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay, like so there's tele- two. <laughs> a telepathic moose mounted electron gun. Oh, oh poor moose. <laughs> and I was actually thinking the entire time that Harrow was imprisoned, my brain was going through that as a little mini module. Every turn and twist that he was taking down the hallways and ducking out of sight while other sentries walked by. Yeah, that was really evocative to me. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. It'd be a great mini module or solo module. Well, you and I are thinking on the same wavelength, I guess telepathically. We must have inherited. <laughs> are you calling my wife a moose, Mark? <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to have unspoken words. Uh, I thought the perfect mini adventure, you call it the Dead Isle of Manoon, and it's that whole imprisonment. You know, he's in the unclean's lair, or however you couch it. Maybe your adventuring party that's going exploring there, and it's all this weird sort of mixture of psionics and technology. I really like that. that Carded by giant too. lamprey. Right, and, right, and it's all right. the stuff that is unknown, especially yeah, to your characters. Like, so it it had an eerie vibe. It did, and and I think that would just make a really neat sort of like you said a mini mod. I agree with Bob on that Kilman class. You know, you really have a lot that's kind of going for it in terms of how it's described. You know, the fact that he paints those rank badges on his face and reapplies them. And he's called out for it, too, by Luchar and, you know, saying that's a weird thing that you're doing, but it's part of his identity. I think he could totally do some sort of mutant animal class, like based on Gorm, where you take an intelligent (laughs) bear like that and you start, you know, saying, well, what would the characteristics of that be? Or even the Eleveners, you know, the ones that are the source of mysterious following Druid-like beings. I think that, you know, there's kind of that lack of Druidness in DCC in general, and this could be a, a good opportunity to stat that out. You saying we need more tree huggers? <laughs> <laughs> the clerics that are pacifists until you push them too far exactly yeah i love that yeah he's he gives everybody a chance you know several chances to say you know i'm gonna do this if you don't back off but when they don't it's up with the giant fish shark creature to eat your boat uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i did warn you i gave you a chance i give you a second chance okay uh, sick em, boys <laughs> I thought some magic items, the rod that he finds off of one of those unclean adepts could make a cool sort of, you make it a magic amplifier, but it also has this sort of untapped vibe of tapping into the phlogiston or something like that, where other things are listening, you know, and your thoughts are, your magic is amplified, but you're also kind of drawing attention to yourself. I thought that might make a cool magical device. And then you talked about the runes and and I think that would make a a really good thing. But, you know, he also had this ability to, to... use a crystal to go farsi right in terms of like he didn't have control necessarily over 
what he was going to be seeing the vision out of. And that's kind of very DCC in the sense of, well, you know, maybe the lower results, you're looking at a frog at its sort of little you know, ground. But that's true. You know, that's actually a really good way to DCCify one of the powers of Merlin. Because Merlin would do far-seeing via oh, animals. Yeah. And, yeah. and now you've got this mechanic, oh, well, I didn't roll a bird this time. I rolled a frog and it can't see anything but the grass in front of it. So I'm going to try again. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I like that concept and he, he had to do that sometimes. What I really really want to see is some more details on that dweller in the mist. You know that sort of enigmatic non-human intelligence. The one and, that melted. And, yes. And I just thought that would make a great creature, very scary, you know, in terms of like the unknown that it presents. Well, and I was left wondering, is this a race of beings or is it one? Because they talk about that happening on other occasions where strange cloaked men had attacked enclaves and they melted away when they were killed. Is this an immortal being that just keeps coming back or is it a race? Oh my gosh, yeah. I didn't think of a connection. You could make it like a, you know, the same creature, but reconstituting itself. Yeah. Or it could be a race, you know, a race of these these psychic vampires. Yeah. You have all the Lemutes. You know, we talked about the Snapper. You also have the Hairy Howlers. The, you know, especially oh. the one that, the Chichok. You know, the, yeah, that the monkeys. met an unfortunate end. Yeah, I thought those would make really good, you know, monsters to throw at players. He does, there's just so many of those, like, that come out during the story, just either, you know, they're traveling and they're having this long sort of slow journey, but that gives them an opportunity to introduce all these sort of mutations you can trace back to some original pre-death creature, but they've become, you know, colossi or, you know, large size based on the, the time and mutations and just the competitiveness, you know, of this environment. Bigger is better. So everything is, is getting bigger and, and kind of getting back to that age of the dinosaurs feeling. And full props to the author for calling the giant telepathic moose that Hiro was writing, calling it a morse. With no <laughs> irony and no humor intended, just putting the line out there straight. Morse. Uh, wait, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> it's a moose horse. Uh, yeah. <laughs> And the other last one I had was, I thought the forest dryads would make Ooh. kind of an intriguing patron where they are asking Hiro and his party to help them out, you know, and give them aid. And, you know, they're giving them shelter in return and passage. It's kind of this patroness quality. And you can almost have this sort of strange inhuman intelligence that's evolved from plant-based nature of these dryads. And I thought that'd be kind of a, a cool patient write-up. Well, they were kind of sinister. I was expecting them to end up like arboreal sirens. Well, yeah, especially the way they started out. Because, you know, if you were to invoke the patron, well, shoot, I guess it would be alternately them invoking you and making all of your comrades just take a nap and have some really screwed up dreams and (laughs) so that that could definitely be some uh i guess a level of patron taint (laughs) definitely a little sinister they definitely had ulterior motives and things that they weren't quite willing to share all you know with the human companions they they seem to have like a better relationship with the animals like gorm and you know to a certain extent luchar who's you know a female like them yeah yeah, their interactions with Luchar were a little bit dark. <laughs> creepy. I was going to go with creepy, but dark works too, I think. But yeah, I could really see a full patron write up on that. So, what about props, Jen? Well, it all goes back to the food, Bob. You got to prep little foil <laughs> pouches of rations. 
Adderkorn. Broken old watches would be great. Or here's a bucket of dirt. Find something in it. Do a little faux archaeological dig for something that might have survived after the death. Of course, you got to put in the mathematical tables in there. You could even do something as simple as one of those slide rulers with the multiplication tables. And the problem or solution chosen would be the prayer that someone inadvertently casts. <laughs> Want to cast divine intervention? Figure out pi to 30 places. <laughs> Without a calculator. A ruler. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I actually really like the idea of you know, some torn scraps of paper from the dot matrix printers. You know, archaic computer Ooh, manuals yeah. to represent pieces of the Abbey's research that they find along the way as kind of like breadcrumbs. That could be very cool. But I'm sure Mark is going to blow it out of the water again, so take it away. <laughs> I only had two things. But this time, I, I really was intrigued by the idea of these casting runes that Hiro uses subconsciously while he's far-seeing. And the whole idea of him grabbing out of this bag to have whatever comes into his hand. You know, he says he's not very good at it. And he, you know, most of the time you can only get five or six and it's less than that. But he has to interpret, you know, what these symbols are. I thought it would just be really great for a judge to, you know, when a when a character casts like a scrying spell or some sort of premonition spell, or they have to, there's some scene or encounter, they hand out, here's these five runes. Now it's up to you how you interpret them, right? And they can give them sort of the general translations that Hyros have also presented with the fact that, Lightning could be a storm is coming, or it could mean that you're going to get hit by lightning, <laughs> right? You, <laughs> quite literally, yeah. You have some yeah, aspect of this knowledge, but you, you don't quite know, and, and it's it's kind of a puzzle. I mean, I, I really like that puzzle that the runes represent and, and giving the players the autonomy to interpret it and dictate their actions based on that. So I think you could really do something lovely with that. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it's like the story cubes. You could roll oh, the story yeah. cubes, and okay, there's a picture of a cat. Mm-hmm. You interpret it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you could almost, you could do it inverse of that too. You could have the sort of story driven by whatever results the player draws, right? You know, so instead of giving them hints about what's coming up, the player draws something out of a bag and that the story gives you gets hints changed of what by to that. do. Exactly. You're leveraging some of those tools, you know, the game master tricks to say, okay, let, let's take that feedback and incorporate it now. But you are physically putting it in the player's hand to roll rather than you rolling it behind a screen and making little notes about it. Yeah. Yeah. And there's still some ambiguity too, right? Because they don't know how you're necessarily interpreting it. <laughs> they could think the weather's going to change and you could think <laughs> I'm going to shoot them with a telepathic well, moose mounted lightning gun. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Bob. It always comes back to the telepathic mood mountain lightning gun. Yeah. Welcome to my life this week. <laughs> the other thing that I really wanted to do with players, because you know, if it's all about the food, you know, like Jen said, is the pemmican, which when I read that, when I first read it, it was like, oh my gosh. You know, I used to read all these Arctic explorations or Antarctic exploration, you know, sort of journals and novels and and talking about pemmican was like this you know, concept of, okay, well, that's a, like an a ration that they, they, you know, they get, but it's neat to see it traced to this Canadian heritage. Oh, yeah. You know, it's described as this ancient travel food of the North, you know, that's made of animal fat and maple sugar and dried berries all pressed into a cake. And I thought, you know, you really need to make some of that for your players and, and just as a treat, right? You know, not necessarily even saying, 
you know, this is something you have to solve in the game, but, you know, this is just more atmospheric. And and there's a couple of good recipes that, you know, I found that I thought we could link to in the show notes. We certainly can, but I want to say, um, you, you say that it might be a treat. I'm assuming you've never had pemmican? <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> Think of hard, sugary lard crammed with raisins is essentially what pemmican That sounds like. delicious. Oh, God, no. You know, the maple sugar and dried berries, I'm with you up to that point. It pressed into a cake it kind of sounds like a, a granola bar essentially the animal fat yeah it's interesting and you gotta go and ruin it okay <laughs> you know, for me right off the bat musically i was thinking of america's soundtrack to the last unicorn because the last <gasps> unicorn kind of takes place in this weird is it the past is it post-apocalyptic story they don't really focus too heavily on that but you you get that weird feel so that music was running through my head as i was reading this until i got to the raucous sea shanties and i thought of the group out of la called the pirates charles and they've got songs like sand in the rum raise whiskey high castrate the governor yeah and uh, then they're definitely very raucous um especially if you're the governor can we build on that with the shanties that they were singing that were making her uncomfortable but then she was kind of locking away some of those ideas to try on the guy later that exactly when they mentioned the raucous shanties that's what i was thinking of no uh that particular passage though she was carefully memorizing some of the worst of those lyrics to later try on her lover (laughs) can can we expand from pirates charles to the dread crew of oddwood with land ho Oh, gee. Well, yeah, so that would definitely be, uh, yeah. Speaking of not politically correct. <laughs> the passages, the sailors cheered up and began to sing songs which Lucera appeared determined to ignore while carefully memorizing some of the worst to try later on her lover. Yeehaw, good yeah. times. <laughs> and I don't know if that means she was planning on trying the lyrics out on him or just the actions described therein. But that's the music I was thinking of. Her props... <laughs> Junk jewelry lockets. Sometimes you can get these kind of big squarish lockets, and I thought those would be great to represent the mind locks. Oh. And if you buy some Sculpey, you could easily make a homemade set of the divination runes. I certainly want to read the second book and see if the other runes of the set of 40 are named, but you nice. could easily make a set of custom runes out of Sculpey and then just give them to your players or give them to one of the players to pull from and to carry with them. And I think that'd be a a great way to bring that mechanic to the table. Very cool. So, Mark, existing DCC inspirations and reskins. Some of it's a little esoteric. First of all, there's Crawl Jammer. Volume 3 has The Psychic Knight by Tim Callahan. Oh! Which is this character class that has kind of a random psychic ability. But in that same volume, there's also Advanced GCC Psionics by Sean Ellis. And if you go and read that, he actually directly calls out Hero and Hero's Journey as an inspiration. He even has a, uh, instead of a Morse, he has a, a, a hoose, I think is what he calls it. <laughs> I love this community. <laughs> also in volume two, there's a Technomancer, which is idea of science-based magic. It's kind of evocative of this. Uh, we mentioned... Mind games, that's obviously the psionic component that Reed Sanfilippo put out in conjunction with some of this crawling under the broken moon aspects. Another one I found that was really intriguing was in Gong Farmer's 2016, there was almost a whole volume that was written by Victor Garrison and Forrest Aguirre. And it was all about 
fungi and spores and like 50 different cruds, you know, toolkits, something it was referred to. <laughs> and it, it's really in the fecund minutia, you know, of, of all these things that really made me think of the house and its minions. And I thought that would be a good thing to go to. That's fecund cool. minutia. Um, Don't say that too yeah. fast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the wilderness journey that Hyra takes really made me think of hex crawls, especially you could take that map that comes with chain coffin of the Appalachia and make that your north hero's journey portion and it's very similar to that similar with peril and purple planet or even the emerald enchanter strikes back there's another or hex crawl that's based in a forest that you could take and place your telepathic movement <laughs> <laughs> and then finally i you know kind of thinking about how i play games these days a lot of my games are played with my family and trying to this concept of you know learning dcc with them as I started that last episode trying to play Black Sun Death Crawl with my seven-year-old and my four-year-old, and that was a lot of fun. Actually. You have to give us a little more info on that one because children playing Black Sun Death Crawl just seems a little bit beyond dark. <laughs> I, you know, the thing that really gets kids, it's anything with mutations, you know, because when you start saying you can mutate, they're in that, you know, oh boy, X-Men, you know, type thing. Okay. And, you know, they, they can be very kid-friendly. Especially in this case, that would make an easy way to translate this kind of reskin onto a DCC. You know, you have the obviously the mutations background, but also like the psionic powers are, are like the force, you know, like Star Wars. And, you know, come on, as Tim Callahan, to paraphrase him, I, I found this great article by him. It's about an adventurer who rides a giant moose and has a bear companion and fights mysterious forces after the apocalypse with his psychic powers. What kid is not going to like that? Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fair. <laughs> okay. What about you, Jan? Um, a little less kid-friendly. Although, well, I don't know. M mutated beavers. Yeah, the, the giant beavers that they're describing. I immediately went to the Jocasters in Attack of the Frogs. And, yeah. Uh, they also mention after, or maybe it was during, the attack from the house, there was this fluid corruption coming from it. Which is kind of gross if you think of fluid anything coming from fungi but yeah, and they were talking like slime molds and things like that and yeah. but just the the base of it before it became the molds again for the frogs or the haunting of larvic island you, you've got that fluid corruption but the biggest place that took me was the very first dug con at uh, Gen Con that I ever experienced, where Doug ran the reverse sailors. Oh. You know, by the time all of us beastmen had crawled up, we saw all this yellowish. Yeah, how did he phrase it? Um, but just a, a miasma of corruption, of fluid corruption there, and little guys in like the space hazmat suits with little vacuum cleaner attachments, essentially trying to get rid of it. And <laughs> It was an evocative <laughs> book. You know, the moment the forest spirit appeared and started saying, okay, I have a job for you, I flashed to the beginning of Hole in the Sky. Oh, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. You could almost start something right there and, and start a campaign with zero level characters right at that moment. The detailed descriptions of travel, like you were talking about the, the hex crawls, but this was actually giving further detail to the point where 
okay, sometimes he rowed, sometimes she took the oars. And I was really reminded of uh, Dark Trails, the way David Beatty was actually asking, okay, who's on what train car? Or you're about to board the ship, what level are you on? Because the detail actually did matter for whatever else was in that vehicle or, or mode of transportation. And I think lastly, Bob, you were mentioning the adept factions with the blue, the red, the yellow. How could you forget the cultists and the people of the pit? Uh, well, uh, mostly through a lot of heavy drinking. But- <laughs> <laughs> My job here is done. Uh, actually, props to Mr. Goodman on that one, since he wrote people of the pit but uh yeah i i was able to modify those enough to apparently scar my players well done (laughs) nice job so i don't know bob are you still drinking or can you go on Uh, i i will i will somehow persevere and carry on (laughs) Uh, i of course was struck by the very obvious similarities and differences between this and mutant crawl classics and crawling under a broken moon like crawling under a broken moon they're aware of the disaster. They're not exactly sure what it was, but they're aware of the disaster and they're aware of ancient technologies. They know they're looking for a computer. They know how to use certain things. Uh, that, like that's true. Classics. They know there was a disaster. They're not sure what it was. Um, <laughs> and the world, I think the world of mutant crawl classics, yeah, with planchians and, and things like that is certainly... It carries the Gamma World vibe that this story carries. This this world is, I want to say, old school gaming as opposed to Gonzo gaming, if that makes sense. Crawling Under a Broken Moon certainly takes it kind of the Thundar cartoon approach. You can be killed by a mailbox. In this one, if you're killed by a mailbox, it's because the giant frog thing is beating you to death with it. And and so there's some differences, <laughs> but it, it reminded me of both of those, and, and in a positive way. Museum at the End of Time. Yeah. The Adventurer's Release, you mm-hmm. the whole rite of passage to find devices of the ancients, which is certainly not something that is unique to MCC. James Ward wrote an adventure, ironically called, Rite of Passage, for Metamorphosis Alpha, which is sort of a similar thing. You're going through a maze and you're looking to find items to bring back. So those concepts really stuck with me because this, to me, is certainly more MCC than DCC. Although I would put a telepathic moose-mounted lightning gun in anything. <laughs> so Don't laugh, it's true. <laughs> you would. There, there's that. Um <laughs> But those things, the feelings of what has been lost, the factions that are trying to recover things and obscure things, the races that are rising, the races that are being created, it all felt kind of Jack Kirby commandy to me, or commandy feels Hyro's journey to me, which also really stresses the MCC vibe for me. Uh, this scene where they describe the mutants rising up out of the water and attacking. I read that issue of Commandy. <laughs> okay, that's so, fair. <laughs> so, I mean, that post-apocalyptic vibe to uh, the hilt. And speaking of post-apocalyptic, of course, that takes us to our DCC feature for the show, Against the Atomic Overlord. Ooh, 
For a thousand years Mezerkul has known only war, and now the overlord reigns supreme. From his gargantuan metal fortress he rules the blasted remains of the planet's last city. Hope seems lost until visitors arrive from a distant world bringing uncanny magical powers. Your adventurers must pick a path through twisted ruins, ancient missile silos, strange monorail systems, and a conflict with four deadly factions to save a world or destroy it. Edgar Johnson, just kudos to him for making one of the best adventures in the DCC line, in my opinion. And it's just so fitting for the setting. You know, it's really one of the first times that DCC sort of branched out into transport to another world kind of been the same parallel with peril on the purple planet it was, right. this was written a couple of years ago very top-notch adventure and, and just really had a lot of fun playing with it when i got to experience it a couple of years ago at north texas did you get to run it or play it i got to play it in one of edgar's i don't know if it was a play test or if it was a release version i think it might have been he was going he was released at north texas that year so he was running a couple of games of it and that makes sense it was he, the, what he did was, it, this kind of gets into the end game, but one group he gave all a party of pregens that were lawful, and another group he gave all a party of pregens that were chaotic. Huh. And he, he ran the tables differently that way, which was, uh, you know, a, a, I thought a neat thing that he did uh, well, when I was yeah, because be- reading back through Between it. those four different factions or, or races, if you will, you know, each has their own goals. And your alignment is going to make a huge difference in your interaction with those. This was one of the first projects I was actually given by the Dark Master. So, um, yeah, be gentle, guys. A little daunting in its length because I think it's, what, a 36-page mod? Which is pretty insane compared to the 16-pagers that are mostly out there. It is 32 pages. Jeez. Yeah, it's, it's... It's hefty. There's handouts. There's beautiful illustrations by, of course... Uh, Doug Kovacs in there, the maps, there's yes, so much stuff to it. Uh, there's a lot of detail crammed into it, in part, I think, because it can really serve as a campaign launching point. Yes, it's meant for level fives, but at the end, you have this option of starting a, really, of, of starting a brand new campaign from the launching point. Oh, yeah. I would love to run it at a convention yeah, as like a three-part adventure. Oh, you'd need to. It's 32 pages. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I, I know that um, running a four-hour session, it's going to be super abbreviated. But like, I was following Hyro's exploration of the keep that he was pa- captured in. That was totally area two to me. I was visualizing that map as he was going through. You've got the silo. So when they found the silo and they were going down to the lower levels and then the lower levels just walking around the big thing in the center, I was really wondering if what the players might have done is what Hyro and his party were going to do. And there's a sense of the adventure does it really well. You don't know quite what they're taking on. You know, you may have some assumptions best as a kind of a meta level as a player, but the actual characters using this technology and bringing and delivering it to this, you know, this overlord, they don't really know what's going to happen when they activate it. And I'm totally with the area to comparison, you know, the, the Undercity. I thought this entire adventure could be skinned to Hyro's journey with just a couple tweaks, to be honest. 
and I have to say, just on a on a cosmetic level, when I was reading the planet name Mezercole, it literally reminded me of the Mets. I was like, oh, the M Z Mets. No, Mezercole, Mezercole, not Mets. Not Mets. <laughs> uh, but on a cosmetic <laughs> level, cool. that little that little connection. Um, just a great adventure. We talk about this module a lot in comparison with the post-apocalyptic appendix n readings you know especially through the past year i've i've mentioned it a lot i'm just i think i was maybe 10 pages into this book and i it was the very first thing i wrote down on my little notepad I'm like yep this is i finally get to do this <laughs> We finally get to feature this one. It's well deserving of a feature too, because I think it may have a tendency to get overlooked in sort of the, if you want to run something off world, people recommend Purple Planet, you know, because that's you know the big campaign setting. Well, and as opposed to Purple Planet, which usually introduces you a little bit gently, this one, not so much. This one doesn't even buy you a beer. <laughs> no, no, Edgar does not kiss you first. Uh. <laughs> no, 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 he doesn't. But it, it's it's a great adventure. It certainly ties well to what we read. I think if you're looking at running against Atomic Overlord, it certainly behooves you to read Hyro's Journey and and just let that settle into your brain for additional things that you can do when your party says, oh, we're supposed to go straight ahead, we're turning left. Yeah. It should be noted that this one really does have a lot of NPC interaction. Yes, it does. And much like Hyro, there are very real consequences for your interactions. If you are flippant, if you just blow someone off, no guarantees, man. You don't know what their alignment is. Yep. Mm -hmm. And... On that ominous note. Dun, dun, dun. As announced last time, there is a Gong Farmers Almanac 2017 that's currently going on. A drive for writers, artists, folks who just want to help with layout or editing. Our goal is going to be to take all that input from the community, make it freely available again, uh, released at Gen Con this year in late August. And so go to the Gong Farmers community or the DCC community on Google Plus to get more details. What a good way to celebrate the 50th year of Gen Con. With free stuff. Free stuff, (laughs) yes. M. Nixick is running DCC Funnels from 2 to 6 p.m. every Saturday at Tacoma Games in Tacoma, Washington. Reed Sanfilippo and Shield of Faith Publishing are now running a Kickstarter for the Crawling Under a Broken Moon-inspired American Survival Guide, a full campaign guide for the Crawling Under a Broken Moon setting. Friend of the show, Troy Tucker, continues to run DCC RPG at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida, Check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. In April, the Appendix N Book Club of New York will be discussing A. Merritt's The Fox Woman and other stories. A. Merritt, good stuff. And as this airs, well, hopefully you're at GaryCon. No small number of judges will be running DCC for you. Notables such as Brendan LaSalle, Harley Strode, William Burnick, David Beatty, Michael Bolum. Switch up the order a little bit here. Jim Wampler, Joe Bittman, Haley Sketch, <laughs> Corey Gashman, also known as DM Kojo, Reed Sanfilippo, John Hook, Jarrett Crater, Daniel Bishop, yay, he's making it out, and Jeff Goad, and Dan Dom, James Walls, 
and uh, well, Bob's going to be running a lot of Call of Cthulhu and um, 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 that other one. <laughs> and you know what? If you haven't gotten to play anything, hit me up. Maybe we can do some off-book Lankmar stuff, because I'm chomping at the bit. Registration is coming up for Gen Con 50, and that starts in May. There are a record number of DCC and related games on the schedule for this year. Um, as of this recording, I think there's 142 different DCC and related <coughs> game events. Oh my god. From all of your favorite judges, and including the return, I'm happy to announce, of the DCC Open Tournament. Yay! Which used to be part of the 3.5 era for Goodman Games, and now they're bringing it back for DCC RPG this year. Wow! So get your five favorite players, form a team, and compete against the rest of the DCC community. Oh man, that that'll rock! Well, <sighs> that 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 will be that will be amazing and a lot of fun. On that soul crushing uh, note, <laughs> coming up in early June is North Texas RPG Con. There is always great DCC goodness, or sometimes. VCC goodness, like Velociraptor Crawl Classics. <laughs> what is it? Uh, Brontosaurus Velociraptor Crawl? Claw Classics. That's what it was. Ooh, Velociraptor Claw Classics. Yeah. That's the name. <laughs> that's, also, that's also where I got to play test the past year's uh, holiday module, Mr. Brunner. Yay! Ah, that's where I do a lot of my uh, play testing, I think, is it starts at North Texas because I'm local and I get to attend. I'm going to be doing the same thing this year. Awesome. Well... If you want to see your creation in the DCC community's only free monthly e-zine, we would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your appendix and reading. Are you running road crew games or preparing for free RPG day? Submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites, Facebook, G+, we are still not on LO. <laughs> Keep an eye out for future <laughs> topics. We can include your material in the show, Companion. Uh, it, it has been a pleasure, as always, to do the show with you folks. Mark, any parting words? Thank you so much for Ernie coming and helping us out these last two episodes. Uh, it's really inspiring to hear from him. And, yeah, next show... We need to talk more about free RPG days. Well, and Ooh. we will be. We will be once again putting together our list of free RPG day events across the world so you can find DCC goodness wherever you may be. And bring Appendix N inspiration there, too. Exactly. So thank you, folks, for listening to our first two-part episode, really, ever. Uh, technically, <laughs> maybe. Our first our first, and quite possibly our last two-part episode ever. Uh, <laughs> but thank you all for listening. We hope you've been inspired. Good night. Bye. Good night, guys. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time when the library opens with special guest Michael Curtis as we discuss DCC Lankmar. (laughs) 
The Sanctum Socorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2017.